Hi, I'm Bruce Tolgan, author of The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, published by Harvard Business Review Press. And this is The Indispensables, a podcast featuring conversations with real go-to people who stand the test of time in the real world of work. Each week, I ask my guests what they do differently that sets them apart in the workplace, what makes them tick, and what makes them so successful. In this episode, I talk with James Ferrara, co-founder of IntelliTravel, about how he was able to, with his team, grow this incredible network of more than 60,000 independent home-based advisors in the travel business during the pandemic. Welcome to The Indispensables. I'm Bruce Tulgan, and I'm delighted to welcome James Ferrara, co-founder and president of IntelliTravel one of the world's longest running and largest travel host agencies with a growing network of more than 60,000 independent home-based advisors across the United States, the UK, the Caribbean, and Mexico. James Ferrara, welcome to The Indispensables. Thank you, Bruce. So happy to be here. Um, so this is a 30 years you've been running this business. Is that right? That's right. I started when I was five. <laughs> Um, so tell us your story. How did you get to where you are now? Uh, what's your basic story? Sure. Um, this is actually our 30th anniversary. And we dove into the travel industry uh, at a time just after deregulation. And it was a time of great creativity in the industry. Uh, probably your listeners know less what a host agency is then they know what an online travel agency is, like the Expedias or uh, Travelocities of the world, that they too were an outgrowth of deregulation. When, when the travel industry was heavily regulated, so this is through the 70s and into the early 80s, you had to be appointed by the airlines. You had to be licensed. There was a lot of bureaucracy. Uh, and Deregulation changed all that. And, of course, from my perspective, one of the most important things to come out of it was the idea that anyone could sell travel. And you could do it part-time, and you could do it out of your home. You can do it uh, in a relationship marketing business where you're selling, at least initially, to family and friends. And from our perspective and the perspective of our supplier partners like the cruise lines and the hotel companies that you could capture new markets or penetrate deeply into markets through your spheres of influence. It no longer was somebody sitting in a, a dusty office on Main Street with yellowing uh, travel posters, but I could have someone on the church board selling travel or in a large corporation selling travel becoming sort of implants all throughout society into different audiences. It became a very powerful idea. And frankly, you know, it's 30 years later, so we're a 30-year overnight success. Yeah. But um, uh, it, be it became a pillar of the industry. And, uh, you know, the, the industry says now that more than two-thirds of travel agents now work independently from and so this is basically, you were there at the ground floor of the reinvention of travel agencies, and it sounds like 
uh, lighting a fire uh, under a lot of uh, small entrepreneurial ventures. Uh, absolutely. I mean, our agents are CEOs of their own travel businesses. They all run small businesses, some not so small. And uh, it was this sort of creativity, uh, original thinking, disruption, yes. But I don't like the negative connotation of disruption. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. But it makes me think of like, you know, people standing up in the middle of a meeting and sort of interrupting the meeting and breaking the meeting. We are uh, professional, respectful disruptors. I'll put it that way. Yeah, but I mean, if it, so it sounds like the deregulation uh, was the, the catalyst of disruption. And then businesses like yours came along uh, and lit a fire under the entrepreneurship that can flow out of that kind of uh, disruption. Yes, I think so. And I think that um, I, I'll, I will speak several times probably about a man named Brian Tracy. Do you know Brian, the motivational speaker, personal development uh, expert, big author? I'm in a similar business, uh, Brian Tracy, but uh, uh, I, I wouldn't claim to be in his league. But of course, I know I know who Brian Tracy is. Well, um, Brian helped us found this company. He was an early partner of IntelliTravels. He was a great influence on me even before then. My dad gave me The Psychology of Selling, which was a, a, a book of like 21 cassette tapes. Do you remember cassette tapes <laughs> sure yeah I'm, I'm 54 so um so my dad gave me that when i was a teenager you know and and i was influenced by brian even then but then i came to know him and work with him and uh just one of the many things uh he opened my mind to was sort of uh raising up and looking at your business at a, a meta category level so you're not in the trucking business, you're in the transportation business, moving things around, which then might open you up to, you know, airlines and rail and so on. Well, the same with our approach to the travel business. He and my partners and I started to look at the way things were done, and we envisioned a, a sort of paradigm shift. Okay? We don't have to sell travel the way it has always been done. Let's try new ways to sell travel. And this idea had legs immediately. This idea lit people up. And here we are 30 years later, and it still does. I mean, a very recent fact I can give you is that during the pandemic of this past year, we grew our business. We actually added thousands of independent agents to our network, even during this pandemic. So there's something at the kernel of this idea that is very powerful. And in some sense, it's the granddaddy of the gig economy. Well, it certainly is, is a forerunner. Uh, and so how does it work? Um, what is it that you bring to these independent uh, travel agents? Well, the longevity comes from the fact that it is an extremely reasonable value proposition. We actually only take about $40 a month for our services. 
Uh, you can leave at any time. There are no contracts or commitments. And we provide the booking technology, the commission tracking, the education, which has been really the backbone of our business, educating people on travel opportunities, travel products, and how to sell them. Uh, we bring deep relationships now, of course, three-decade relationships with the top brands in the travel industry around the world. Everyone you can think of, from Disney to Royal Caribbean, Carnival, every hotel and airline brand and so on. We provide all of that, the training, support, technology, all of it. And we do it for probably less than many people spend on Starbucks every month. I mean, we actually give you a business for that. And when we receive a commission from the uh, travel partner, the, the cruise line, the hotel, we turn around and share it with our independent agent. So when you say you've grown during this pandemic, all of our clients in, um, in the hospitality industry, hotels, and also, of course, restaurants and are suffering. Uh, how is it that you're growing? Well, first of all, I don't want to forget about those people who are suffering or have suffered this past year. It's important to take a moment and remember them. But we're growing because of the reach and the warmth of this sales technique. This is not cold calling. It's not advertising. It's uh, relationship building. And so when the stress comes to the marketplace, the relationships are the marketing technique that holds. And then beyond that, we've attracted a lot more uh, agents to our network because they're being displaced elsewhere, right? Elsewhere in the travel and hospitality business, certainly. Uh, you know, we've had agencies closed down, big travel suppliers closed down. And so people are looking for a place to land, in some cases, a, a lifeboat, really. And we provide that at such a low cost. So in that sense, in a way, you're not just in the travel business, but you're in the entrepreneurship business. Well, aren't we all? But I mean, but I mean, you're empowering people to become entrepreneurs that your, uh, your network makes it possible for other people uh, to stand up their own business. It does. At, at, at its best, that is true. We're empowering people to create a business for themselves, to maybe, I mean, think about the experience of the last year. Uh, you, if you lost your job in the last year, the idea that you might be able to take charge of your life and be your own boss and not be beholden to an employer, you know, became very attractive in the last year. People reexamined their options, their lifestyles, over the last year, and our model became even more attractive than usual. So how many people, uh, how many employees do you have? You have 60,000 independent home-based advisors, um, but how many employees are at sort of, uh, you know, headquarters? So um, let me tell you a story about that. You know, you're right. We have 60,000 
advisors under written contract to us in about 14 countries around the world. And we have a very big business in the U.S. and the U.K., and then smaller businesses in the Caribbean and uh, Mexico. When we first started out, so this is in the early 90s, and uh, we grew very quickly, we actually had at one point about 300 employees in an operations center in California. But since that time, the world has changed so much. And the company made a, a, a migration to digital, to online. In the old days, we used to have 800 numbers coming in over the telephone from all over the country. Now, the agents have an extra net online. The booking technology is online. So many of the processes are automated and have the quality control that comes along with automation so that actually the number of employees is greatly reduced from that you know, 1990s level of 250, 300 employees. Now we have about 75 employees. And where are they based? Well, in a normal year, <laughs> they'd, they'd be based uh, mostly in Delray Beach, Florida, in a brand new 14,000 square foot facility that we moved into on a Monday in March of last year. And on Wednesday, the state told us to send everyone home. Golly, so you've got this giant, spectacular new headquarters and, uh, uh, and, and it's underpopulated, I'm guessing, because people are working from home. Everyone is still working from home. We were lucky. We've always been early adopters of technology. It's in the name, right, in teletravel. We've been doing webinars. We've had cloud-based systems since the early days. Uh, in Florida, in South Florida, you have to deal with the weather, right? You have to deal with the hurricanes. So we have, every year, had periods where we've had to send our teams home and work from home but be connected through the cloud. So we were really well prepared for this year. Uh, we had already adopted, you know, for years, online learning and distance education for our agents. So we were able to make that pivot, I think, uh, seamlessly, much easier than most uh, companies. And that's where everyone still is. And then, of course, the, the future from that point is a, a reevaluation of our facility, of our footprint, you know, from a, from a cost point of view, from an overhead point of view, also from an environmental point of view, thinking for our employees from a, a lifestyle point of view. I can tell you that just two years ago, I was not a big believer in work from home. I, I, we had some employees uh, on that model, but they were very carefully selected. Senior people, people who I knew had the, the, the self-motivation and the discipline um, that I could trust them to work from home. Now my mind has been opened uh, completely. And in fact, going forward for the rest of this year and into next year, it's clear to me that many of our employees are going to continue to work from home and that I'm going to reduce the commitment that I've made to real estate 
I can use that money elsewhere. You know, it, it, I can invest more in the support of our agents and customers in the field, or I can turn that money into a wider margin, which we then share with all our employees. Yeah, it's extraordinary because, and I'm hearing this from a lot of CEOs, that their commercial real estate uh, footprint um, is never going to go back to what it was. That they're um, that they're and and not just because of the cost of the real estate, but as you say, uh, there are environmental implications. And and the other piece of the puzzle is a lot of employees are finding their work can be done uh, from home and there's um, increased convenience and flexibility and comfort uh, there and and you know what else bruce there's increased productivity yeah most pe- most organizations are finding there's greater productivity and um which is output per labor unit right so it should mean people are getting more done per hour let's say and and i think in some cases that's because they don't have the distractions uh, uh, of being at work uh, of course, there's something lost uh, not being there in proximity to each other, but there's also a lot that's gained. And then the other piece is people are saving commuting time. So if you save 10 hours a week in commuting, um, you know, you can work five hours more and you still have a five-hour bonus, right? Yeah, that, that's absolutely right. But we do have to take care of people in a different way with this model of working. We've spent a lot of time thinking about um, the, the health and well-being of our employees. I mean, not only because we're nice people, I mean, I hope that, but because it makes sense as an employer, your employees are your assets and to replace them is expensive. And so I want to make sure that my employees are okay working from home, that they're staying physically healthy, that they are, um, that they're staying mentally healthy. And here we are, you know, a year into this, and there is a fatigue that you have to uh, pay attention to. Um, I feel, I don't know about you, but, you know, I miss, as you said, I miss being with my employees. You're, you're talking to a guy who is on several planes a week, typically, and I haven't been on a plane in a year. Yeah, me too. I mean, I was traveling 150 plus days a year, um, and I have not been on a plane in um, in 11 months. And um, on the one hand, you know, here we put in a, a production studio in, in our office, and our office happens to be right next door to my house. So um, for me, it's become immensely convenient. But there's definitely something lost, not being able to go and be with clients and uh, uh, be in person and... Um, uh, there, there is a loss. I call it the proximity gap or the propinquity gap. And, you know, there is, um, there's a loss of spontaneous interaction. There's a loss of, um, noticing each other. But you can account for it. I mean, you can attempt to balance it, right? So we, uh, provide exercise classes in the morning virtually for our employees, yoga and exercise classes. We hold social events as if we were still all together. They're just held on Zoom now. And we try to put a lot of creativity. It's one thing to have a Zoom call, but we'll send out a cocktail 
kit a couple of days prior to the event and all mix a cocktail, including non-alcoholic <laughs> cocktails together. Or we've sent out um, logoed apparel to our employees before an event to create some company pride. I mean, you, you have to take measures to try to fill those holes as much as you can. And, and, um, have you found that um, there are advantages as a leader? I, I, I've certainly heard from some leaders that, uh, you know, having people working in the same place during the same hours, roughly, um, they sort of can look out, out of the corner of their eye, but place and time are really not good measures of performance. And um, uh, being remote uh, and leading remotely has forced a lot of leaders to put a lot more structure and substance into their um, communication and uh, focus much more on concrete actions and, and real performance outcomes. Sure. One of the blessings, if you will, to come from the adversity, right? Those are the lessons we learned, the improvements we made over the last year. We learned it with technology. You know, our, our events now have moved to uh, virtual events. So this company produces 35 in-person events a year, and, and some of them very large. That's another pivot we had to make. But, you know, we have one, we have our annual conference coming up. Typically, three, four, five thousand 5,000 attendees, someplace fantastic in the world, and it's happening virtually in a couple of weeks. But the agenda for it and the content in it is better than any in-person event we've ever held. We could get top speakers because they don't have to take several days and fly to the event, right? I have top industry executives whose time is very difficult to, um, to commit, but they can pre-record something for the event. We have entertainment. At the event, you're missing, and going back to your point, you're missing the fellowship, right? Meeting someone in the hallway, going out to dinner, going out to have a drink. And we attempt to have receptions and use creativity to fill those voids, but you, you can't do that 100%. That's, and when things turn, when we're allowed, I guarantee you, that we will go back to doing in-person events. But we won't forget what we learned this past year. My in-person events will be simulcast. They'll be available uh, a week later, play on demand. I mean, the technology is allowing me to get more education to more agents to make it more convenient for them. It costs me less, so it costs them less. We're not going to forget all that. It becomes a sort of hybrid model going forward. Yeah. And so what do you think uh, is going to happen uh, to the future of travel uh, in, in the post-pandemic world? Do you think people will go back to traveling? Well, uh, you know, giving you a peek inside the industry. First of all, people did not stop traveling the last year. We sold several million dollars of travel every week through the entire pandemic. We ended the year um, profitable. I distributed a healthy profit share 
to our uh, all of our employees, every one of them. Uh, and that's unusual in the travel industry for last year. You're right. But people found a way. You know, we had incredible amount of activity last summer around the Thanksgiving and December holidays. You know, so in it, the spikes weren't as high as they were in a typical year, but they were still there. And we've already seen, since about the beginning of December, growing sales week over week, every week since the beginning of December. And that is the return of consumer confidence in travel. And that is driven by, no surprise, the vaccines, right? And all the headlines and news about the vaccine. I just got jabbed myself. Have you? I have not gotten the vaccine yet. Uh, I'm uh, I'm I'm not quite 54 yet. Here in Connecticut, they're doing the the vaccines by um, right now. It's uh, 55 to uh, to 64 uh, is the age range that's being vaccinated right now. You're you're in Florida. No, I'm in New York myself. So, oh, you're in New York. Yeah, I just made it in, but I will tell you that this makes it very personal for me. The lifting of some burden off your shoulders, off your heart, your heavy heart, uh, is amazing. The minute they vaccinate, and even though it's just the first jab, I have to go back in three weeks for the second one, um, you feel different. And so now when I look at our metrics, I understand what's going on in consumers' minds. And uh, we do a great deal of business in the UK. And that gives me uh, a, a bit of a global perspective, which is a tremendous advantage. Right now, the UK has really turned a corner. Just the last couple of days, after Boris Johnson made announcements on Monday, gave everyone a roadmap, gave them critical dates for when certain types of businesses will reopen as they come out of lockdown, and when they'll be able to travel, the floodgates opened up. And everyone, not just Intelligible, but every agency, every travel supplier is reporting surges in bookings and activity. Now, what's interesting about that, the global perspective part of it is, what I've seen is we run here about a month behind what's been going on in the UK. So... We're going to come to that point in the next month or so where we turn the corner here as well. We've been booking travel all along. Mostly it's been for, you know, 2022 now, right? Even into 2023. But what we saw in the UK this week is the summer surge. Everyone's flooding into the summer. So you're starting to see um, the light at the end of the tunnel. Oh, definitely. I mean, we're, we are on the way back. There is no doubt in my mind. We're also facing a, a very interesting market from a travel seller's point of view because we have pent-up demand, you know, which everyone seems to accept as a given now. Every, you know, it's one of those words we should have a drinking game. Every time someone says pent-up demand, every time someone says unprecedented, you have to take a shot. <laughs> um, but we have incredible pent-up demand. We have limited supply because 
the cruise lines, I mean, the cruise industry has been offline for a year, right? When it does come back, and that looks like it's going to be, let's say, June, they're not coming back with all the ships at once. And the ships that do come back, those few, will be limited in occupancy and capacity for social distancing, right? So limited supply, huge pent-up demand, guess what? You know, we're going to be looking at lots of urgency amongst consumers to get a, a holiday in after a year of being stuck at home and to try to get it into this summer. And so uh, maybe uh, you think we might be on on the, on the um, precipice of a new roaring 20s? <laughs> well, I do think that there is going to be a travel boom. I think there there's, you know, there is this amazing pent-up demand. The cruise market, you know, cruising people are fanatics. And and all I hear every day is, I can't wait to get back on a cruise. I can't wait. So you've got that. You've got some revenge buying going on. You know, people who've been stuck in their homes who will just go anywhere the minute they're allowed to go. They're, they're sort of angry and frustrated about it. During this past year, we, we watched things like um, Google search statistics. And one of the top searched term categories was adventure travel. Now, let me tell you, there are not that many people who really go on adventure travel trips. But people have been sitting home kind of armchair traveling, dreaming about travel. So they're they're sort of pushing the envelope a little bit and searching very adventurous stuff, even though mostly they're going to go to the beach and have a pina colada. So, so here we are. You're, you're definitely uh, giving me hope. We're seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. But here you are. Uh, you've run this business for 30 years. Um, you have uh, a whole bunch of employees and, and tens of thousands of um, independent home-based advisors in your network. As a leader uh, who has uh, taken what really could have been an at-risk business uh, through um, the greatest challenge uh, in decades, if not, I don't know when the last um, emergency of this magnitude. World War II. Yeah, maybe World War II, uh, probably. So so what have you learned as a leader on, on the, uh, having guided your organization through this? I think that there are two kinds of When something like this happens, there are companies who react in fear. They cut costs and sort of hunker down. I'm not judging them really. I mean, there may be instances where that's appropriate, but it's it's not who we are. We knew in late February, early March, that we were facing something. I had hoped it would be a quarter, turned out to be a year, right? But we knew we were facing something serious. And my kind of company, in between the punches, you look for the openings. My team from the beginning uh, looked for the opportunities. Now, our discipline and our approach to business in the years leading up to this moment helped us to be able to do that. Because you've built a strong house. You've got cash on hand. 
as the opportunities arise in the adversity, and they always will, you need to be in the right position to take advantage of them. But if you are, you do. So we looked for the opportunities in the adversity. That's the definition of an optimist, according to Winston Churchill, versus a pessimist who looks for the adversity and the opportunity. And so, uh, so you feel like you had already built people up who were used to um, uh, looking for uh, openings uh, when they're, they're under a hail of punches, uh, to use your metaphor, um, uh, that uh, looking for the openings, looking for the opportunities, you had that foundation already. Absolutely. I mean, those people came together and we acquired new technologies. We acquired companies. We took every chance to make this company better and stronger so that coming into 2021, that's exactly what we are. We're better and stronger than we were a year ago. Well, that is a tremendous thing to be able to say. And um, so if, if somebody's listening to this and thinking, wow, you know, how does somebody get to be James Ferrara? Um, uh, what's your sort of elevator, uh, uh, elevator, uh, pitch for career advice? Like, what would you tell somebody, you know, all right, here's how you get to be someone like me. Surround yourself with great talent <laughs> and, uh, nurture them and have a pure heart. This is maybe an old fashioned idea, but. Enter battle against the dragon with a pure heart. Seek to help people. And I, I believe that's a winning strategy. A, a pure heart, is, is that's a good one. Clean hands and a pure heart. Uh, I would add uh, from the psalm, and who hath not taken the Lord's name in vain and hath not sworn deceitfully. That's always good advice. <laughs> uh, uh, and um, uh, so we've managed to quote Winston Churchill. You've managed to make a dragon reference um, and a pure heart. Fight the dragon with a pure heart. Uh, that is great advice. James Ferrara, a CEO of IntelliTravel um, and co-founder. Um, thank you for being a guest on The Indispensables. Thank you, Bruce. Really enjoyed it. In our next episode, I will talk with Trip Tripathy, who leads the CEO board and shareholder advisory practice at Kaufman Rawson, one of the biggest accounting and consulting firms in the world. If you like this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review. You can also follow us on Twitter at goto underscore podcast. That's at goto underscore podcast. Learn more about GoToism in my new book, The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, available now from Harvard Business Review Press, wherever books are sold. And you can learn more about our work at Rainmaker Thinking by visiting us at rainmakerthinking.com. Until next time, stay strong and stay indispensable.